0: The, the goal tonight is to start with Cain and Abel, but just to backtrack for a second, we, we dealt with the fact that God's already got a family and it seems like he loves to add to it and it probably has been going on for a long time. And so when he has a new creation, what does he do? He, he brings about family life again in our creation with Adam and Eve. And the design is so that we can all learn and understand what it is to live in families and he's teaching us that through our our natural families. He's teaching it through our children and also through our collegial family. He's helping us understand what it's like to live in his family. And this is our training ground. This is our practice time to learn critical lessons that we are going to need to be able to work with the mortals in the kingdom age. So that's really the design of what God has in mind here with families. And so when you look at the book of Genesis, which is the book of all the beginnings, it turns out that Genesis contains nearly all of our doctrinal teachings. They're all there right in the beginning. So if you start reading through Genesis, you can learn a lot of it. But it also contains practical lessons about living as a member of God's family. There's all these family life lessons in Genesis. No wonder it has so much uh, narrative discussion in Genesis. There's all these narrative stories about what happened in people's lives because all these critical family life lessons come out, for which a lot of them are warnings about. Here are things that didn't work. So if you believe it and you trust God, you won't try those things yourself. Uh, and maybe there is a better way. So that's what we looked at last week. We dealt with uh, the the divine creation and how God designed families, and then with Adam and Eve. So. Tonight, we're going to look in at, we're going to jump in with Cain and Abel and then move on to Noah and maybe get some of Abraham in. We'll see how it goes. So, I've always liked Cain and Abel because it's a great lesson for how siblings and brothers and sisters get along in ecclesial life. And so, you find in Genesis 4 that in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, which, by the way, shows you that there were specific rules that God had set up about how to worship him that involved animal offerings. And he even told them about what to do with parts of the animal, which of which the fat was a major part, as you find out later on in the law of Moses as well. So the Lord respected Abel and his offering that we know. Oops. Here And it was Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, some people think it was just because they offered, Cain offered the wrong stuff, but there was something going on in Cain's life that God did not respect. And Cain gets very angry at all this and his countenance fell. But when you look at this from a practical lesson about family life lessons or lessons that we can learn about with God's family, God does have expectations about how we worship him. He has expectations. There, there are specific things that he wants in our worship. It isn't just a case that where we can make it up and worship God the way we want to. Like uh, in a lot, of, uh, a lot of religions around the world would be like that. I think a lot of the American Indian stuff was like that where people just sort of from a humanistic perspective decided what they thought their God would want, and then they they worship God that way, but it was something they dreamed up. Whereas the Bible makes it very clear that our God has a specific kind of worship he is expecting and behaviors that he's expecting out of us. And it's not from humanism, it's from God, it's from the top down. And in this case, uh, Cain was not willing to participate in that. Because we know that our God really is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He does care about how we worship him. Now, I don't think it's so much that he cares I wouldn't get into like how we're dressed or what Bible version we're using or whatever. He cares about how we approach him and the kind of relationship that we have with him. That's what he really wants us to be uh, sure about. So you can't just dream up your own way to worship God and then expect him to accept that. That isn't how it's going to work. Because as we found out last week, God has a spiritual training program for us. He's got a program in mind. He is going to train us to be members of his family. And our worship is part of that program. It's part of that training program. And and you can see how In in the worship that he lays out in the Bible, you know, look at how in the Old Testament under the law, he would have required people to come to Jerusalem three times a year. Or in in the New Testament times, how they they met as ecclesias and they got together. Uh, These things were designed so that you didn't become an isolationist. You didn't just go off on your own. He wants us involved in the families that that he has, in in the ecclesial families. And he required that as part of our worship. That's part of his program, that we get involved in ecclesial life. So this incident with Cain and Abel, it really deals with the root cause of many family problems, really. And the the issue that really comes up right away is, what are we going to do when we make mistakes? Because everybody makes mistakes. So we can uh, admit our mistake and learn a lesson and get right with God. That's one possibility. Or we can blame other people and refuse to grow. We get angry with God and others because of what happens. We become an unhappy person. Uh, And there's really two approaches that we can have in life. And we have to make a decision, brethren and sisters, as to which one we will do. Uh, Because we all make mistakes, let's face it. Everybody makes mistakes. And I say mistakes here rather than sins, because sometimes when you use the word sins, people think, well, this is big stuff. But it's all the mistakes that we're making all the time. We're all making mistakes, which some of which are sins. And we have to make a decision of how are we gonna deal with this? Are we gonna to try to hide behind it and, and justify ourselves all the time? Or are we going to look at them as learning experiences that, all right, I messed up that time. I'm gonna learn from that. And we're gonna get right with God and we repent of the mistakes that we made. And we do the same thing with others. We, we repent and we try to like fix relationships and try to move forward rather than trying to cover them up. Because it's really hard to grow spiritually when we just get angry at the people who are trying to help us understand our weaknesses and our mistakes. And I think that's why you'll see it in family life a lot of times that husbands and wives are hardest on each other than they are on other people. You see this happening in marriages and with children and their parents and parents with their children. It's because the the root cause that's there is an unwillingness to humble ourselves and admit, I made a mistake. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to try to learn from this and next time not make the same mistake. Uh, Because our, our natural tendency is to shoot the messenger and that's what we do. And we somehow, for some reason, we feel comfortable doing that with our own family members uh better than we feel doing that with other people in ecclesial life and friends that we might have uh, out in public but it happens with everybody which by the way you're welcome to uh, unmute yourself and jump in anytime you want i really can't see everybody tonight so you'll just have to jump in and talk and i will pause at the end of each section we we'll get done with uh with cain and abel and then before we go on into noah we'll see if anybody's got any comments because i'm sure some of these things ring a bell with all of you at home Uh, we've all experienced this, everybody has, and we have to make a decision. What are we going to do when we make mistakes? Because you can either look at mistakes as something that you try to cover up and you try to hide and pretend that I'm perfect, or you can look at them as stepping stones to learning. That one of the ways we learn by experience is that God lets us make mistakes. And the mistakes then when we treat them the right way, you know, if we acknowledge them, they can become learning experiences for, for us. And we can learn to develop a relationship with God because he doesn't kill us over a mistake. He's hoping we will learn from our mistakes and that we will ask for help to try to do better in the future. Because if we let them, these mistakes, they can be building blocks of our faith. They can be, if, if we let them. And I really believe it's so true that God is a lot more concerned about where we're headed today than all the sins that we committed yesterday. And that's something that we have to get over and we have to develop a relationship with God where we realize he's after a finished product. He is shaping us and he's molding us into the image of his son. And when you watch Bible characters, as we're going through the readings right now, and you, you watch these different characters all, all through the year, you see with some people, some people like jumped on board right away, and they were like running full steam like a Joseph. And it's like, wow, what a, what a great guy. But then you contrast that with his brothers, or you look at some of the things the disciples did, and it took them a long time to catch on to like what Jesus was really after. And God is patiently letting those mistakes happen. I was thinking when we were talking this morning, uh, when Sue and I were doing some of the readings, we were talking about the life of Paul, and we were looking at like imagine what it was like for Jesus to meet people and heal people as we're going through Matthew right now, and and he realizes some of these people he's healing they're going to become you know like rocks in the in his ecclesia when he's gone, and he's making preparations probably for his first century ecclesia. And imagine what it was like when he ran into the apostle Paul and he must have seen Paul during his mortal life and and he knew him. And he would have just had to watch all these mistakes Paul made one after the other. Even when Jesus was resurrected and went to heaven, he still had to watch the apostle Paul make make widows and and turn children into uh, orphans. And, and, And this is what God and Jesus will do. They allow us to make these mistakes because they're hoping that this will then have a major impact on us to turn into better people in the future. And part of that experience is that we end up having a lot of mistakes. We commit a lot of sins, and hopefully we're learning to grow from them. So that's what you're running into here with Cain and Abel right off the bat. You know, how do we respond to correction? So as the Proverbs say in, in Proverbs 9, at verse 8, you know, do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you but rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Or in Proverbs 17, that rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. And it's all a matter of how we respond, brothers and sisters. So how, how do we do this? How do we deal with people who are in the right when we are in the wrong? How do we do it? Do we just sit there and try to justify our case? And just talk louder and louder and just keep, you know, we get to a point we don't even listen to what the other side is saying because we're so committed to justifying our case. So I've always liked James uh, James 3 in the RSV. His warning there is about let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, for you know that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness, for we all make many mistakes. (laughs) And he just lays it on the line. Let's be honest. We all make many mistakes and the teachers are held up to a higher standard. And so it's a warning to all of us that that are teachers that we've got to be careful how we deal with those things. And as James would say later on, therefore, if you confess your sins to one another, which I personally believe are more to do with personal issues, uh, and we pray for one another that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous man has great power and its effects. That's what we should be doing is have that perspective. So sometimes we don't though, sometimes we don't want to admit it, right? You know, we're just, we're hard hearted. We, we don't want to acknowledge that somebody else was right. Now my wife was right. Sue's right. And I'm wrong. And it's hard for guys to admit that at times, you know, we just like, We want to feel like we got to have all the answers or an ecclesial life. We get, we get into the ecclesial business meeting or something like that. And, and, you know, we've made a, a position and we stated a case and then other people disagree with us and what it's possible. We could be wrong. And, and so what God does, and you can thank God for the angels, because I think this is what angels do for us, brethren and sisters, is they talk with one another and they say, Hey, look, Jim's got this problem. He just doesn't seem to see it. You got any good ideas on how I could get him to understand it? And this is what family life is about. People talk to each other. They share experiences. They find out how can we help people? And I I think right now is when we should be practicing that for the future. So what God does then is he allows the angels to expose us to situations where we have to face our weaknesses. Because otherwise, we might choose not to deal with them. We we just would pretend they don't exist, or we try to justify it and say, I'm right, and they're wrong. As as we saw in the Job study last December, and we look at going through the readings in Job, that Job got to a point where he was so convinced he was right that he actually thought God was wrong. And that's how far this can go. It's, It's a good warning to all of us. You know, because we don't realize that, wait a minute, God's always right. Uh, we learn that hopefully by you know, experience. But how do we deal with this with other people then? So what, you know, what the angels will do then is they make us face these things. So sometimes what they'll do is they, they make us face our weaknesses in another person that we deal with. It might be our spouse. It could be somebody at work. It could be somebody in our neighborhood or in school, if we're going to school still, or somebody in our ecclesia, but we, we we are brought into a situation where there is somebody there who has maybe a similar weakness, and maybe they're a little better at it than we are, and you know, you look at somebody like Jacob that we'll look at later on in this study, where you, know, you can imagine the discussion the angels would have had of, how do we knock this out of Jacob? He grew up with, with Rachel and he grew up with this, this influence around him, this cultural influence of scheming his way through things. How do we knock it out of him and get him to trust God? And what do they do? They, you know through, through all the experience that happens there where, you know, with Esau and he's got to run away and they send him up north to where he's got to live with Laban. What a great plan to get Jacob to realize that this is not a good approach to life. Because he has to live now with somebody who's a better schemer than he is. And that's sometimes what God does. He makes us face this with, with somebody else and, and another person. Sometimes he makes us face it with our children. You look at biblical examples of that, where, like, look at David's immorality and his murder that he committed, and all the implications of how that worked out in those families. You know, what David then had to live with, what God did, what what we could never do is God brought the right experiences into David's life to train him to realize what a terrible disaster this was that he had done, the sins that he had committed when he had to face the immorality of Amnon with Tamar. And then he had to accept the murder of Amnon by Absalom and then the murder of Absalom by Joab. It's like we could never do that. We couldn't bring that, that consequence into David's life, but angels can do that. And they do a much better job of custom designing the right experience that so that people will learn and they'll, they'll learn to face their mistakes and deal with them. Uh, because their goal is that we learn from these things and we don't do them again. And other times, you know, God ends up having to to take away the source of that weakness as he did with Samson. It was Seems like it wasn't until God you know, took his eyes out that Samson's spiritual life really grew and he finally spiritually matured into the man that God was after. Um, but that, those, are, those are some of the ways in which God can work on our lives to help us face our weaknesses. If we're willing, if we're willing, because if we're not willing, then all these things are a waste because the angels do these things. They bring them into our life and we just like we scheme some more. And we just like blame other people for more of these issues. But if we're trying to learn and we're listening to God, sort of like Elihu said with Job, that God God does speak to people, but sometimes they don't don't understand it. They don't hear him uh, because he's speaking through the experiences of our life. But if we're willing to to learn from God's uh, discipline in our life, then he can turn us into his children. But if we walk away, which is what happens here with Cain, if we walk away from God's discipline, then he's lost a handle on trying to shape us into the image of his son. And I think that's what you see with Cain. So from the perspective of, of an Abel, because a lot of us in life are fixers, we, we try to analyze problems and think about, well, how do we fix the problem? I think parents probably do this a lot. We, we analyze our children and we look at the things that are going on in our children's lives and we try to think like how are we going to fix this you know or, or sometimes husbands will do that with their wives or wives with their husbands but i'm not really sure in this case abel could fix the problem he, he, he probably you know any more than joseph really could fix the problem later on with his brothers they wanted to fix it but they couldn't fix it themselves very similar to, to uh, Jacob later on when he wrestles with the angel and, and he finally realizes, I can't scheme my way through this anymore. My family is a disaster. And he holds on to that angel and he won't let him go until the angel agrees to bless his family and, and do things that Jacob couldn't do with his family to save his kids. So what can we do, though, through the midst of all this? Well, we can continue to be kind and gracious and helpful and keep the door open and, and let, let people realize that we're just waiting for the day when they come back. You know? So when Cain when walks away, that's what Abel could do is, is keep that door open and help and pray about it and, and realize that it was up to God really to fix this. It wasn't something that Abel could fix. It, this was Cain's problem, really. It wasn't Abel's problem. It was really Cain's problem and how he had responded to this. But it encouraged all of us, encouraged us to, to pray for one another, really. You pray for people because we realize some of these things are out of our control. And all we can do is talk to God about it, pray that he will do with his angels. He'll do the impossible. He'll change people's lives. And we can sort of sit back and watch the salvation of God and, and see what God does. But what you don't want to do as a parent is, is let these things ruin your own effectiveness and your family and your ecclesial life. You can't let these things destroy you because you can't fix the problem. The, all these problems are not necessarily fixable by us. We got to turn them over to God and let God work in these situations. We do what we can, brothers and sisters, we do. We, we try to do what we can. But some of these things that we run into in family life and ecclesial life, we just can't fix ourselves. And it takes time, patience, and God is the one who will probably in the end fix the problem. So the choices for us then are, which one are we gonna do when things go wrong? When when something has happened and and we've we've made a mistake. So we can either get angry and be unkind and get jealous of others who make good choices. And we can claim all the way along that it's not fair. Uh, Or we can admit our mistakes and look for God's influence. We can respond with kindness to people and ask for mercy. Uh, We can look for the lessons in life that God is trying to get us to learn. And we can appreciate the good in one another that God develops and realize how thankful we should be that there are some people that are, are helping us learn these things. And they're, they're actually trying to help us because that's what God is after. And this is how you develop the fruit of the spirit. This is how love and joy and peace and long suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control come along is by acknowledging our mistakes repenting of them, learning from them, and thanking people that helped us learn along the way. But the key is humility, humility. If, if we're not humble and we don't really see ourselves in our in the situation we're in, that we are so far away from God by nature that without his help, we will never make it. And without the help of the other people around us, if, if we think that we're high up there, we, we don't have a basis for God to work with us. So Paul would would write to the Philippians and remind them that if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's what Philippians 2 is all about. Paul goes through a series of examples in that chapter of people who are willing to give their lives for the sake of others because they counted others more important than themselves. And if we're, we're right on this in our families, if we get this straight, then we'll be humble and we'll practice humility and acknowledge our mistakes with our children, with our spouses, with our parents. We'll acknowledge all those things and, and look for ways to learn so that we can be of the same mind and we can be full of compassion and have one purpose of helping each other along the road to the kingdom. So when you look at what happened here in Genesis 4, God tried to work with Cain. After Cain brought the wrong stuff, he didn't follow what God had asked. He didn't worship God the way God had asked him to. And he wasn't living a lifestyle that God was after. In verse 6 of Genesis 4, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Now, see, what, what most people... Christians would have done with this is spun it around and said, Well, Cain was a sinner. He had made mistakes like this. God would be angry at him. But when you look at the way the account reads, this is a loving God working with Cain, coming to him and saying, Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, see, this is the God that we worship, brethren and sisters. He's, he doesn't get angry at us like this. He treats us as his children, the same way moms and dads learn to work with their own children. When, when your children make mistakes, oh, sure, there's times where we get angry at what they've done. But what we really, we really do is we love them and we want them to have a better life. We want them to learn to become better people. And this is the approach God takes with Cain. But he warns him right there that, look, at, if you do well, you'll be accepted. But if you don't do well, then sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Now, I know some, you know, I think it was John Thomas that started this, that thought this, this was actually a sin offering right there. But I remember Ron Abel years ago reminding us all that it just doesn't fit the context. I can still remember the first day. First time I ever heard Ron Abel read this out of an RSV, because that's what the RSV does with this. The same thing, which was new at the time. It was like sin lies at the door and it like it's an animal and it's desirous for you. It's like ready to pounce on you. And I really think that what God has done here for us in in Genesis 4, right at the very beginning of Genesis, at the beginning of the Bible, after the mistake of Adam and Eve and the incident with the serpent, he is already personifying sin. Saying that, look at this sin that we're dealing with, this nature that we have that that is so given into and wanting and desiring things that are wrong. It is like a wild animal and it's lying at the door of our homes. It's just sitting there ready to pounce on us. Its desire is for us. This is the war with sin that the Apostle Paul would talk about in in Romans chapter 7. And right from the beginning, God wants to make it very clear that in in his family and in our ecclesias, we have to make a choice. We either get on board with him and we realize that sin is lying at the door and we have to fight it and rule over it, or we just give into it and God's lost his ability to shape us into the image of his son. That's a choice that we have to make. We either choose to be involved with the war with sin because that's what Christ did. He, he fought the devil and defeated it, uh, or we just give into it and we, we, we follow and just become it becomes worse, it starts to rule our lives. But it's fascinating to watch here how God, this is supposedly this angry God of the Old Testament, right from the beginning, what does he do? He wants to extend mercy to Cain. He tells him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But Cain failed to join God in the war against sin. He didn't want to. He didn't want to fight this battle. He wanted to give into it instead. And what happens in the rest of the story is is a good warning to all of us. So it's a good thing to keep in mind that there's a a great picture to have in mind that there's sin crouching at the door. That's the way the RSV has it. Sin is crouching at the door and it's ready to jump on you but you must master it. You've got to fight the war with sin. And I believe this is really what God's done is right from the beginning, he personified it so that we'd realize how strong the enemy is. It's, it's a very strong enemy and we've got to take it seriously. I mean, you look back at what God did later on with, with and what he had right here with the animal sacrifices is that the reason he wanted able to bring an animal and he wanted Cain to bring an animal is because from the very beginning, God was trying to explain to people how he can save us sinners. He says, look, I can still save you. I can still extend mercy to you if you're willing to bring an animal, bring an animal without blemish It's going to represent the Messiah and you lay your hands on that animal And you kill it and you agree to die with Christ to sin. The same lesson Paul would bring up in Romans chapter 6. So God starts this from the beginning. He wasn't trying to teach people about how much he wanted to punish them. He was trying to educate people in his love about how much he wanted to save them. But they had to agree to join the war with sin. And Cain at this point is not willing to do that and that's probably why he didn't bring an animal. So Cain's offering was rejected, but Abel brings a lamb, and to bring that lamb, he would have had to kill that lamb, and he would have to acknowledge that, look at this is how we get to God. We fight the animal desire, we put it to death, we put it up on the altar, and God can change it. He can burn it into something that will become a pleasing odor to him as it ascends up into heaven. He can do that if we're willing to let him. And so he used animal sacrifice all the way through the Bible to try to illustrate that concept. But unfortunately, so many people turned it into a ritualistic event, and they, they were so committed to their idea that God wanted to punish them all the time that they thought their animal offering is what would appease God's wrath. And they totally misunderstood So another lesson that comes out for all of us in this is that it's really interesting to watch the Hebrew words here in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. When God said to Eve that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Those are the same two Hebrew words that are used in Genesis 4 and verse 7, where he says to Cain, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. And what happens in life, I think for most guys, is that it's a lot easier for us to take up Genesis three, verse 16 and say, oh great, we're gonna rule over our wives. We're the one in charge and we're the boss and we're all these things and her desire should be for me. And what we don't do is take the warning of Genesis four, verse seven, that what God was trying to explain right off the bat was that, hey, look, sin is powerful. Its desire is going to be for you all through your life, but you have to rule over it. You've got to do that. You've got to take up this battle and fight it. And this is what will help you then in having a relationship with your spouse where you will end up helping one another instead of feeling like you've got to be in charge and rule them. So that's the challenge that all the guys have, is that we've got to read Genesis 4, verse 7 and realize that it's sin who's really, who has a desire for us that we have to master. We've got to rule over that. And it's it's an ongoing battle every day. So what God has done for us, brethren and sisters, is that he's freed us from the slavery to sin. We don't have to be like Cain, enslaved to sin anymore. Abel wasn't. He wasn't enslaved to sin anymore. He had been freed. But the warning there is don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. See, we come to him as being alive from the dead because we commit ourselves to die with Christ to sin and we've been raised to a new life. A life in which we're born anew, we're born again, where we are now alive to God and instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law, but under grace. What a freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Don't take it for granted. It's a privilege that we have. It's an extreme privilege that we can do these things. So when you look at what happened with Cain, why didn't he come back? God was extending the hand of mercy, telling Cain that, look at all you got to do is, is just uh, get your life right. And, you know, you'll, everything will be OK. I'm, I'm, um, the door is wide open. We just got to fix this. But what happened with Cain that comes out pretty clear is he says, my punishment is more than I can bear. So when when God brought consequences into Cain's life, he viewed it as God was punishing him. He didn't have a loving relationship with God. He didn't view God as someone who's trying to mold him and shape him to join his family forever. He saw God as somebody who's just watching what he does. And when he makes a mistake and doesn't follow the rules right, God just punishes him. And that's, that's the relationship that he had. And I think we got to be careful that we don't fall into that trap, Brendan and sisters, because when we look at the events of our life and things that go wrong and, and problems that we experience, if we end up thinking of them as punishment from God, where God somehow punishing us in some way in relation to what we have done, then it it ruins our relationship with God. And instead of realizing that as a loving father, he's disciplining us as Paul says it in Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. And as Paul goes on in Hebrews 12, he says, "Don't be surprised. You know, if you were illegitimate, God wouldn't bother doing this. But because you are legitimate children, He is going to discipline you. He's going to chasten you. He's going to. He uses the word later on, train you." He's training you, not like human fathers who do it for their own good. He's doing it for your good so that you can join him forever and be part of his family. This is the God that we worship. It's a a loving God who wants to extend mercy to us and he wants to save us. But we have to cooperate with the training program and don't walk away from it. Or you'll see that how John uses uh, Cain in, in 1 John 3. Remember, when when John brings this up in his first letter, he talks about those that are practicing righteousness versus those that are practicing wickedness. And at the end of John 3, there at verse 10, he brings up the fact that in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So right away, John links in this idea of practicing righteousness with a very practical thing that we can then measure, how are we doing with practicing righteousness? So he links it in with neither does he, who nor is he who does not love his brother, because if you're practicing righteousness, you will love your brethren and sisters, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother, then why did he murder him? So he tells us why. Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. It wasn't because of the offering. It was because of their way of life. Cain was going down a pathway where he was refusing to be part of this idea of linking with the Messiah, dying with him to sin, and instead he wanted to live his own life and do it his way. He wanted to worship God his way and it wasn't going to work. And you see what happens as a result of that. What does he do? When his brother's doing the right thing and he's doing the wrong thing, he had no love for his brother and instead he murdered him because that's where this will lead. And John is warning us that here's a nice barometer, a measuring thing that we can use about we claim that we're practicing righteousness, we claim that we're children of God. Well, how are we doing on loving our brethren and sisters? How are we doing on extending mercy to them? How are we doing them on, on caring about them and, tr- and trying to help them? Well, if you're doing those things, then yeah, they, then you can probably look back and say, all right, you're practicing righteousness. But if we're not, if we have anger in our hearts or we have jealousy in our hearts for our brethren and sisters, well, then we're more like Cain who had his works were evil and we're looking at somebody else whose works are righteous, so the lessons that i picked out, at least from Cain and Abel, that really faith demands that we live God's way. We, we cannot make up the way we want to worship God. He has specific things he wants us to understand in the scriptures, things that he's manifested in Jesus Christ, principles that he has revealed through Jesus Christ, his son, about his righteousness. And he requires that we be committed to that way of life. We also have to be aware that sin would love to devour us. It's, it's really active. It's out there. It's trying to get us all the time. And the only way, the only way we are going to master it is by tapping into the power of God, all the different ways that we can. And uh, the Bible readings would be one of those. Prayer is another one. Being at ecclesial Bible classes when we start up again or coming on at Zoom You know, Working with God's family members, these are all ways that God helps us to defeat the power of sin. And let's try to face our mistakes so that we can learn from from them and and grow our faith. Don't hide behind them and don't try to make up excuses. Let's just admit, I goofed, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, and let's grow. And our attitude towards others must be one of love and forgiveness, brothers and sisters, like our God. You know, that's what our God does. Paul says in Romans 5 that when we were sinners, when we were enemies, when we were without God, we were hopeless. When we were all those things, that's when he sent Jesus Christ to die for us because he loves us. And the way we treat other people manifests whether or not we really have the love of God. And holding on to hatred and envy is just going to ruin our lives really well, and, and it can lead to other major sins. You, you look at this with Cain and you think, all right, it was bad enough that he, he was jealous of Abel and he, he didn't bring the right offering and probably his lifestyle was wrong. But then because he let it build up in him, he got to the point where he wanted to kill him. And that's what happens with hatred and envy. It ruins our lives and it can lead us into much worse sins than we started out with in the beginning. So those are some examples.